Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Well, this program, listeners, is for you. No matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to, Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics, it's about principle. It's not about candidates, it's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. My guest today is Paul Vallone. Paul Vallone is, to me, a true Renaissance man, and I'm very proud and honored to have him on my program today. Uh, Paul got a Bachelor of Arts degree from, in psychobiology from Hamilton College, and he pursued a career in aviation and is currently still a pilot, a 737 pilot for U.S. Airways. He became, like many of us, politically active in the 1990s. Many of us went and lived our lives as if everything was just terrific and fine. But then in the 90s, we started waking up that maybe things were not quite so good as we thought. So he has been very successful uh, in forming uh, political action committees, uh, writing legislation. He has four enacted laws and several elected legislators in North Carolina, including one congressman. So he speaks with a lot of authority when it comes to legislation, politics, and elections. Of course, one of his primary focuses is gun rights. He is a gun right advocate, and he is a gun right advocate because he has an expertise in uh, guns. He's a firearm instructor. He's certified by the NRA and the North Carolina Criminal Justice Education and Training Standards Commission. What we know him for in North Carolina is he is the founder and president of an incredible group called GRNC. GRNC stands for Grassroots North Carolina. It was founded in 1994. It's an all-volunteer 501c4 not-for-profit organization, and they are dedicated to preserving constitutional freedoms. Now, Paul has told us here in his blurb about at GRNC that most, but not all, of the organization's projects are devoted to defending the individual right to keep and bear arms. And that certainly is a focus today because of the fact that we are now faced again with gun grabbers in Washington, D.C., who would like to restrict our first, our Second Amendment rights, uh, and that our basic natural law right of self-protection. 
So that's going to be our subject of conversation with, as I said, a true Renaissance man, and it is a pleasure and honor to have you, Paul, on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum today. Well, thank you very much, sir. The pleasure and honor is mine. That's, uh, that's quite an introduction. I hope I can live up to it. I'm sure you will, and because uh, I'm familiar <laughs> with all the incredible things that you have accomplished. You have accomplished so much for freedom, and this is Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum, and that's really what we're concerned about here. We are concerned about individual freedom. And what we say here is that the right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the federal government or any government is the moral and constitutional basis for individual freedom. And what more, what can be more part of our, of our personal property than our life and our freedom, our right to protect it? So, Paul, let me tell you, first of all, let's start out with something real simple. What, is, what does the Second Amendment mean to you? Well, as uh, unfortunately now some of the uh, people in this debate over the so-called, I say so-called assault weapon ban, seem to think that this is about hunting and sporting activities. But I think you and I would both agree that the framers uh, wrote the Second Amendment as the last in a series of checks and balances against abuse of government. The sort of abuse of government we're starting to see right now under this administration. Um, as you correctly noted, this is getting to be a lot like the 1990s when I became politically active, as did you and many other people, um, particularly because what we're going to see, and I'm having actually difficulty getting some gun owners to understand this and some, uh, some citizens, that if we allow this so-called assault weapon ban, this ban on semi-automatic firearms, uh, the agenda to uh, restrict high-capacity or you know, standard-capacity magazines, uh, the universal background checks, if we allow even one small piece of this to pass, they will be hard on, on its heels with another piece of legislation, just like 94, 93, 94, when we passed, they passed the Brady Act, followed by the ban on semi-automatic firearms, followed immediately by a particularly draconian piece of legislation called Brady Two. Do you remember what was in Brady Two, sir? I certainly do, but why don't you inform our audience for those who have forgotten? Okay. Um, many people are not aware of this, but we would have eaten this piece of legislation had the Republican Revolution not occurred in 1994. It would have required you, if you had the audacity to own 20 firearms or 1,000 rounds of ammunition, and that, by the way, could be two small bricks of 22 caliber ammunition, it would have required you to get an arsenal license that would have allowed the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms to conduct warrantless searches of your home, which, of course, is what they're really after. It would have limited magazine capacities, not to 10 rounds, but to 6 rounds. It would have banned most compact handguns, which are commonly used for carry, concealed carry and self-defense right now. Um, this was an era in the 1990s when we had Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, trying to pass a 10,000% tax on ammunition. Rest assured that this debate we're in right now has absolutely nothing to do with semi-automatic firearms and everything to do with ending, within one generation if they can, ending the private ownership of firearms by Americans. Well, you, this, of course, is, is where they're going. And you know that guns in the hands of individual citizens is extremely dangerous and threatening to tyrants. And they know it. And really, that's what this is all about. Tyranny can only flourish if a population cannot defend itself. 
I remember, of course, I don't remember personally, but as a student of history in the 1930s and 1935, Hitler and the Weimar Republic registered all handguns. And he came out with a statement of how wonderful that was and how history would remark on this as being the time when a, the first time a civilized nation registered all its firearms. Of course, three years later, he used Nazi Germany and Hitler used the stormtroopers to come with that list in hand and confiscate the firearms of the selected groups of people that he wanted to exterminate. So between 1939 and 1945, 13 million Jews, gypsies, cripples, and whatever undesirables he named as undesirable, all these people who were unable to defend themselves were rounded up and exterminated. And I point out that anyone who think that can't, thinks that that cannot happen in the United States should talk to the American citizens of Japanese descent who were rounded up and put in what was FEMA camps of that day by FDR just because they were Japanese. And that's what gun registration, which inevitably leads to gun confiscation, comes to. That's very true, and you bring up a very interesting point, because when they talk about universal background checks, and when Obama lies, and he was lying when he said 40% of transactions don't go through background checks, what they're really after is they're running, they're into, uh, they're trying to run all private transactions through the National Instant Check System. Now that sounds very reasonable. Yeah, well, let's have a background check, make sure that this is a qualified buyer, it's not prohibited under 18 U.S. Code, etc. But until you realize that during the Clinton administration, after the NICS became uh, active, the Clinton administration was using it as a de facto gun registration system by illegally retaining the transaction records that the FBI received you know, from purchases um, in violation of the Brady Law. They were actually using it to register guns. Only after 2000, when George W. Bush took effect, was it returned to its present form in which uh, it is complying with the law, and at least theoretically, theoretically expunging transaction records. We've got to take a quick break here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Don't go anywhere. We've got more after this. Well, obviously, um, essentially, they're trying to create this de facto registration system with the intent to ultimately confiscate firearms. Well, you know, the point I, and the point I made, and when you start registering firearms, you then have a database that you can use. What they used in Nazi Germany is uh, they said the following statement. Guns in the hands of Jews represent a threat to the German Republic. Now, all you need to do is put some blanks in that statement, and what you get is an excuse by an overpowered, tyrannical federal government to take away guns from everyone. Suppose they said, and that's what my objection is to all of these rules about uh, psychiatric illness and the right. All they can do is they can continually expand that definition and get more and more people uh, eliminated from the roles of potential gun owners. When they say guns in the hands of people who take Prozac is a danger to public safety, 
or guns in the hands of people who take blood pressure medicine or anything they decide, they can make it illegal for that group of people to own firearms. An excellent point and another area of particular danger right now since there are some on both sides of the aisle. I noticed Senator Tom Coburn signed off on this not long ago. Who would, uh, if you will, try to feed the other side alone, okay, to give them something by allowing them to expand the background checks under NICS to prohibit more people under 18 U.S. codes? And I, you know, running a gun rights organization, I get calls every day from some poor gent who says, well, I was just rejected for my concealed handgun permit because way back when the uh, Veterans Administration, after, World, after the Vietnam War, determined that I had post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, the Veterans Administration is turning all those name, names over. They become prohibited people now. And you're right. The more people they can prohibit, you know, by, oh, you, you, know, you took antidepressants. I'm sorry. Therefore, you can't, uh, you can't own firearms anymore. So this is a particularly dangerous, uh, I guess, concession that uh, some are, are actually even on the ostensibly pro-gun side are trying to, uh, I guess, uh, to bring up right now to, quote, give them something. This but, is one of the reasons. I'm sorry, go ahead. Sir. No, no, go ahead. This is one of the reasons that uh, GRNC, our organization, was involved in creating a national coalition to stop the gun ban. This coalition is 37 organizations right now and growing, state and national organizations, everything from Gun Owners of America, Jews for the Preservation of Firearms Ownership, the Firearms Coalition, uh, and uh, uh, a bunch of uh, state-level organizations, all who are dedicated to this one simple rule. We will not compromise on this issue. There is no compromise possible on these federal proposals. They must die. Nothing else will suffice. You've said the magic word to me, and that's compromise. I, I really hate that word. Uh, when politicians talk about reaching across the aisle and compromising, what they're compromising is a set of principles that should never, ever, ever be compromised. How can you compromise between freedom and slavery? There is no compromise between those two positions. And yet some in the GOP, who should be the loyal opposition, they should be screaming and yelling right now. They're busy trying to reach across the aisle to appear good. I don't know what their reason is for doing it. But as far as I'm concerned, if you are a man of principle, if you believe in principle, you cannot compromise with people who have not. Exactly true. And one of our operating principles as an organization, and these are, you know, uh, there are a long list of organizations that operate the same way, we consider what our opposition defines as compromise to be a process under which we lose just a little bit less than under their original proposal. It isn't you're gaining anything. They're simply saying, well, we'll only take half your rights today. That's compromise. And that, of course, is not acceptable to us. And that is why we are working. We, I do encourage people to check out um, stopthegunban.org, okay? Stopthegunban.org. And uh, sign our petition. Uh, we're running it through our national organization, which is Rights Watch International. And um, we are gathering our forces and strength to kill this ban and contact legislators in, you know, all of the states where we have coalition members. You know, I am hoping that uh, if we have a national campaign like you have organized, where we constantly write 
to our legislators that they will understand that this is not that it's not something that's going to get them reelected. You know, most of these people up there, I'm sorry to say this, they really don't have principles. They don't have I don't know what they I don't know what they're lacking, but they have one overriding desire and that is to be reelected. They love being up in Washington DC playing with all of our money, which of course is another issue. But nevertheless, that is what they want. They want to be reelected. And I think that is the grounds that we must be contacting them daily, weekly, hourly, as much as possible to tell them, look, if you vote for any aspect of this gun registration, gun ban, or any part of this law, I will work tirelessly to defeat you the next time you come up for re-election. That is the kind of, under, of language and probably the only language that they understand. And, and you could virtually have written our first open letter to Congress that, that, that the coalition presented, because what it said was I mean, almost, you know, this is verbatim, but essentially any politician who supports these measures will be the subject of coordinated action by coalition members. We will leaflet your district. We will mail. We will run political action committees. We will primary you. We will do whatever it takes to defeat And they have to know that this is what we will do each time, every time. Well, and that's why, and, and I agree with you, and I really, I love you for forming uh, a national organization, because that's really what it takes. You know, we can sit here in western North Carolina, or you can sit out in the Triangle area with small groups of people, you know, writing and calling and whatever. However, a national organization where you have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are not afraid to pick up the phone, who are not afraid to write letters uh, to their congressmen and say, look, you represent me. I sent you there. You had better be protecting my freedoms and my rights. Or by God, I will follow you on your campaign trail. I will be at every rally. I will stand up in the back and I'll be screaming and yelling, why did you make me a slave to the federal government? Why did you put me at risk by taking away my defense? Why did you put me at risk by taking away my gun rights? That's what it's going to take to make sure none of this passes. And you know, going back to your, your comparisons to the 1990s, 1990s was when we became active, when the, when the last real threat occurred. But things have changed since the 1990s. Thank heavens for the advent of the Internet, because now, uh, it, it's a two-edged sword, I grant you, but at least now we can get the word out to communicate to people and activate people immediately. I mean, think about the past when it might take you know you days to send letters and respond to legislation, which moves almost like lightning in some cases. Now we can get to, for example, our, just our state-level organization has an email alert network of 60,000 people. Now, if you want to know what 60,000 people can do when they light up a legislative office, I mean, as uh, the late Senator Everett Dirksen once put it, when they feel the heat, they see the light. It does work. It really does work. And, and I would suggest uh, not only to my listeners but to your people as well is that they call. I think a call is a very uh, is even stronger than writing a letter. I've written letters, I've written emails, but you know, uh, last week when they, the Senate was considering whether to uh, to change the filibuster rule, I was really concerned about that because the filibuster rule is important to make sure that we don't have two House of Representatives up there, 
one controlled by the wrong party. That concludes part one of two of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum with very special guest Paul Levone. Tune in next week for the rest. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The rights to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. They call them muddy waters. And people I just love to hear that old man sing. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man I get joy in everything Everything, everything Everything gonna be all right this morning